All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Mount Olive. So glad you joined us today. And those of you that are online or in the chapel as well, we're so glad that you joined us. You know, today is a significant, significant day on our calendar, isn't it? You know, this is the most important day in our calendar year. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, this is the most important event. Today, we're celebrating the most important event in our faith. Our faith, the hinge point of our faith is the resurrection. Everything in our faith, in the Christian faith, rises and falls on what we are celebrating today. Which means if Jesus has been raised from the dead, everything has been changed. And if he's still dead, well, then we are, the way the Apostle Paul puts it, our faith is useless and we're to be pitied. You know, we're kind of the laughing stock of all humanity. And so this is an important day. And this is an important hinge point in our faith, what we are celebrating today. Now that was a lot, wasn't it? I kind of just kind of hit you with everything off the start. So let me back up a little bit. Although it is true that today is the hinge point of our faith, the resurrection, everything rises and falls in the Christian faith on the resurrection, to personalize it a little bit for, for us all, there is a question which is the most important question of your existence. Is the most important question in all of human history, the most important question of your history, because this way, how we answer this question determines if we will be history. This is the most important question, and no, it's not who should I marry, although an important question, or you know, which uh, pathway uh, for a career should I choose, or what should I invest in, all important questions, but the most important question, the most important question, because this question determines our existence in eternity, the most important question is this, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And it's not so much who is Jesus to you as if you and I get to decide who Jesus is. Maybe better said, it's who do you say Jesus is? And is who you say Jesus is, does it line up with who Jesus said he is? Who is Jesus? And what we're celebrating today, the resurrection, changes everything about answering this question. Who is Jesus? Now, unfortunately, for many of us, uh, many of us that maybe aren't, if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, uh, what gets in the way to getting to this question is not the question itself, but often what gets in the way for us getting to this question is the people who claim to have the right answer. Christians. There was a study done a number of years ago by Barna Research Group, and they asked some non-people, uh, people that were not of faith, what kept them from the Christian faith? And do you know that the top answers, none of them had to do anything to do with this question? It had nothing to do with Jesus, which is the question that is the question for all of us. What kept people who were not of faith from the faith was an, a myriad of things, but the number two thing was how judgmental Christians are, and maybe you've met some of these judgmental Christians, right? It's like, ugh, you know, like we can't even get to the idea of who Jesus is because like he may be a good guy, but I just don't want to have any connection to his followers. And it's so, so unfortunate. And if that's kept you from being a Jesus follower, I have some good news for you. Listen to what Jesus said when he was on the earth regarding judgment. He said this, I did not come to judge the world, but I came to save the world. 
And when you read the gospels and you read the story of Jesus that we have in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is so, so true. Jesus did not come and he could have because he knew every heart. He could have come and said, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. You're condemned, you're condemned. You're going to hell. He could have said all of that, but Jesus did not come to judge. In fact, he did not come to send anyone to hell. He came to save us from it. He came to save the world. And so when Jesus came, he came to die on the cross. And this is what we celebrated two days ago on, on Good Friday. He came not to judge us, but to take our sin and the wrath of God against sin that was meant to be for us. He came to shed his blood, even though our blood should have been shed for our own sin. He came to save us. Jesus came to bring the gift of salvation. And it is a wonderful, wonderful gift. But here's the interesting thing. When Jesus came, he came to bring us the gift. But there is another side to that coin. One side is the gift of salvation. But when Jesus rose from the dead, his resurrection actually shows us the other side of the coin. And it happens to be this question. Who is he? Because when Jesus rose from the dead, it changed everything. It changed everything. Now there's a a common uh, struggle that humanity has had since pretty much the beginning of humanity. And you've probably thought this, even if you're not a person of faith, you've probably thought this. If there is a God, I just wanna know one day when I meet him that we're good, right? If there is a God who determines my future, if there's a God who is, who is over everything, I just wanna know one day if I meet him that he's good with me and that I'm good with him. And this question is what determines the answer to that wrestle. And 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul was in the city of Athens, and he came upon a group of Athenians who were wrestling. In fact, the entire city, we find out, was wrestling with this question. If there is a God, we just wanna know, are we good with him? And what does he expect of us? What do we need to do to appease him? And, and, and we're gonna find they went to every length imaginable to make sure they were good with God. And Paul has a conversation with them. And what he does is he leads them to this question because this is the question that determines the answer to that wrestle. It all happened one day, and we can read this story in the book of Acts, that while Paul was waiting for them, two of his friends, uh, Silas and Timothy, in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. I mean, there was just idols everywhere. The, the city was swamped with idols. Now, this shouldn't be completely surprising to us because if any of us have done some work uh, on history and understand the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was just, uh, they, they had the pantheon of gods. It was like, whatever God you wanna worship, you worship that God. And there was just gods and idols all throughout the empire. But the city of Athens was kind of like the, the, the cultural heartbeat of the empire. And so they were leading the way in this. And so the, the city was just full of idols. And the reason it was full of idols, because they were wondering if there is a God and we don't know who he is, but we just want to know that we're right with him. And whenever a new God showed up, it was like, let's just do whatever that God commands. So there's like, you know, an altar and, and, and worship for the, the God of fertility or the goddess of fertility. And there's a, a temple and an altar and there's the God of, uh, of, of peace and a war and, and all kinds of different gods. And they just worshiped all of them, they're just full of idols. So Paul 
began to reason the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. And there was a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers that began to debate with him. Now, these two group, uh, Epicurean and Sto uh, Stoic philosophers kind of represent two groups of people. Um, the Epicureans, they weren't sure if there was a God. There may be a God or there may be the gods. They weren't totally sure. But what they were sure of is the gods could care less about us. They were completely uninvolved. And so practically speaking, they just, they just lived uh, as atheists. And, and so they just said, you know, there may be gods, there may not be gods, but the gods don't care. And so just live however you want, escape as much pain as you can and pursue as much pleasure as you can. And that's what you're, you're to do with your life. Where the Stoic philosopher says, ah, there are gods. There, is, there are many gods and it is man's duty to appease the gods and to do what they ask them to do. And in essence, they're like, we got to make sure we're right with God. Well, some of them, asked, what is this babbler trying to say as they're debating with Paul? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods and they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And Paul came along and said, God has done something amazing in our generation. He has sent his own son, the resurrection and the life. He has sent God in human flesh the one who can forgive our sins. And he died on the cross to make us right with him. If you wanna be right with God, you need to put your faith in Jesus. And he proved it all by raising him from the dead. And all the philosophers, they're like, you're just telling us about some new gods, right? There's like God the Father who sent his son, Jesus. There's two more gods, add them to the list of gods, right? We just gotta, whatever they want, we'll just do what they want. So we're right with God when we meet God. Well, then they took him, that's Paul, and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. They hadn't heard this before. And we're told the Athenians, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived in this, uh, there spent all their time doing nothing but talking about the, and listening to the latest ideas. Sounds like our, anyways. Paul then stood up, in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, right? I mean, there's just gods everywhere, altars everywhere. They're trying to make themselves right with the gods everywhere. They have taken on religion, trying to appease whatever God they come across. And he goes on and says, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. I think this is funny. In essence, what they were doing, and we all do this, they were doing their just-in-case worship, right? It's like, we've got all our gods but oh shoot, what if a God shows up that we didn't know and he's like, hey, I'm here. And they're like, oh no, we're not ready for him. So just in case, let's just build an altar to a God we don't know so that when that God shows up, we're like, hey, we were prepared for you, right? We got the just in case altar already built. We've been worshiping you all along, right? This is their just in case religion. And I said, you and I do this too. We, 
We have our just in case. We, we maybe do it in different ways, right? It's like we have our set of beliefs, but then we do our just in case things, right? You got your superstitious thing. You got your, your luck, good luck charm or your, you know, your little beads or you, you know, knock on wood just in case. I don't believe, you know, but just in case, right? In fact, maybe some of you even just in case your way to church today, right? It's like, I don't know if I believe this whole thing about Jesus and resurrection and the crucifixion, but just in case I'm gonna show up, right? It's like, I don't know about this whole thing, but God, are you watching just in case I'm gonna give a little extra money, right? Just in case, just to cover my bases. See, we all do this just in case because religion pushes us to do just in case. Because here's the premise of religion, all religion. It's that there is a God out there that demands something from me and I just have to appease him. I just have to do enough to make him happy. But here's, here's where religion always breaks down. At what point have you done enough? And when do you ever know if you've done enough? And so religion always causes us to do a little bit of just in case, right? I don't know if I've done, but just in case. I don't know, but just in case. And this is what the Athenians were doing, right? They had altars everywhere for every God imaginable, but just in case a new God showed up, they were ready for him. And Paul says, I see that you are extremely religious. You even have an altar to an unknown God, just in case. And then he says, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And when Paul says ignorant, he's not dissing them, like trashing them or putting them down. In essence, he's saying this, he's saying, you don't even know the very thing you worship. And the Athenians are looking around, they're like, you're right. That's why we built an altar to an unknown God. If we knew his name, we would have put his name on it. Of course we don't know what we worship, right? We're, this is our just in case altar. And then Paul says this, this is what I'm gonna proclaim to you. That, that thing that you, you're like, there's gotta be a God. Let me tell you about God. And he goes on and says, here he is. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. The God who created everything you have you can't just box him up into a temple that you created. He created you. He doesn't need you to build him a home. And there were temples everywhere, right? He's like, no, no, the God of heaven and earth, he is not bound up. You can't localize God and say, here's God. He fits into my box. And he goes on. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. And this, this was revolutionary for them. And this is revolutionary for religion. Because every religion is built off of the idea that we need to do something to appease, to do something to be right with God. God wants something from me. And so I have to do something so that I can be right with God. And Paul comes along and says, ah, the God of heaven is not served by human hands. He does not need anything. He does not need anything from you. Think about that. Your heavenly father, your heavenly father does not want something, he does not need something from you. Rather, he has something 
for you. This is upside down religion. Every religion is the same. It's like we have to do this to earn that. And Paul comes along and says, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, this is upside down. It is not what God wants from you. It's what God has done for you because he, he doesn't need something from you. He has something to give you. And that's exactly what he says next. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Imagine that. A king, a king who does not demand that his subjects sacrifice themselves for the good of the king, but the king gives himself for the good of the subjects. This is what your heavenly father has done for you. He's not a God who says, I'm gonna take from you. He says, I'm gonna give because he is the God who gives. He goes on and says, from one man, He made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. In essence, he's talking about Genesis chapter one, two, and three. If you haven't heard, the first man to live, his name was Adam and his wife was Eve, the first man and woman. And Paul says, God made from the one man all people. He created us and then he created the world, the bounds and the territories and the lands in which we would live, which means this, You have a purpose. God created you for a purpose, on purpose. You are not an accident. You aren't here because of some cosmic or some some just random molecules coming together. You have been created with purpose. If you've ever wondered, why am I here? Paul says, here's why you're here. Because God decided, even though he didn't need anything from anyone, he's decided to create a man from whom all people would come. And he created the world and that's where we would dwell. And here's why, if you've ever wondered, what is the purpose of my life? Paul says, here's the purpose of your life. Here's why God who needed nothing created you. He said this, God did this so that they, so that you and I would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. This is why God created humanity. This is why God has created you. That you would reach out that you would seek him and perhaps you would find him. God created you, that you would have a relationship with him, that you would live in connection with him. And does this mean that God is playing this kind of cosmic divine game of hide and seek? Like I'm gonna create humanity and then I'm gonna go in hiding and you guys gotta try and find me. No, no, God isn't hiding himself from any of us. In fact, Paul says that next, though he is not far from anyone of us. I love the way my my friend describes it. He says, God is always near us. No matter if we run to him or away from him, his distance from us does not change. He is right here. The only difference is when we run away from God, and no matter how fast or how far we run away, he's no further from us. We just can't see him because we're walking the wrong direction. But the moment we repent, which is this idea of turning 180 degrees, God is still there. And when we chase after him, he's still there. And when we run away from him, he's still there. We just aren't seeing him. But his distance from us does not change because he created us so that we would seek him and reach out to him. And perhaps we would find him because he is not far from any of us. For in him, we live and we move and we have our being as some of your own poets have said, and he quotes their own people, He said, we are his offspring, which does not mean that we are gods, 
but rather we are the offspring. God has created us. He has made us. So what is the consequence of all this, right? What does all this mean? If God created us and he created us for a purpose and on purpose so that we would reach out and live for him, what does that mean for our lives right now? And Paul says, here's what it means. Therefore, since all this is true, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. We should not think that we can create God, whether that is in a physical sense or we can create God in our own imagination. Here's the deal. Any God you can create, whom then you must appease, is not a God worth following. Even when you set yourself up as God, it is not worth following. God says there, or Paul says there is a God and we are his offspring. You can't box him in. He goes on. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance such unknowing, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. In the past, God overlooked our ignorance, our not knowing that he indeed is God. And humanity, and this is probably true of our story, your story, is humanity has run from God time and time and time again, though God is not far from us, but now something has changed, and Paul says something has changed, and it happened in our generation, now God is no longer overlooking that. And he is actually calling us to account to repent and turn towards God. And then he says, for he, that's God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. God has set a day in the future by which humanity, you and I, will be held to account and we'll be held to an account by one question. And it'll be a question the man, he's referring to Jesus, will ask us. And how do we have proof of this? Paul says, here's the proof. He, God, has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul says when God raised Jesus from the dead, it changed everything. But specifically, Jesus who came to save us will one day return and we will be held to account for a question. Well, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some sneered, probably thinking, oh, come on. People don't rise from the dead, especially in their generation. I mean, they were Athenians. They were in the Roman Empire. They knew when Rome wanted someone dead, those people did not rise from the dead. They did not survive crucifixion. There were no survival stories like, okay, he's obviously lost his marbles. We don't believe him. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. God has done something amazing in our generation. And here's Paul's point in regard to the, the, the resurrection of Jesus. Proof of a coming judgment is the resurrection of Jesus. Proof that God will not just overlook, he will not just overlook our running away from him is actually the moment God raised Jesus from the dead. Now why is, why is the resurrection proof that one day we'll be held accountable? Paul doesn't say, but here's what I think. Because when Jesus came, he came to save us. And he made all kinds of claims, all kinds of claims. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live forever. That's quite the claim. 
He made claims, I am the one who forgives sins. I have come as God in the flesh. I am is right here with you. He made all these claims. And when he died on the cross, he died for our sin. But when he rose from the dead, he validated every claim he ever made. And when he rose from the dead, he also put in place a day when he would return. See, because if Jesus had died for our sin, but he would still be dead, who would hold us to account of what we did with Jesus? But because he's alive, one day when he comes back, he's gonna come with one question. And the question will be this. What did you do with who I am? Who did you say I am? What did you say about me? And this will be the standard, the measuring stick by which Jesus will keep us to account. And some of you are like, wait, 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 wait. I thought you said earlier in the message, Jesus didn't come to judge. It's true. Jesus didn't come to judge. We read in John 12, he said, I did not come to judge the world. I came to save it. But that was the first time he came. When God raised Jesus from the dead, it proved that he will come again. And the next time he comes, we will see the question, the question of salvation, but from the other side. The question will be, what did you do with my words? And that's what Jesus says next. He said, there is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them on the last day. See, Jesus did not come, did not come to judge the world. He came to save. But here's the interesting thing about salvation. Salvation and judgment go hand in hand. You can't separate them. Logically, we only save what needs saving. And if you and I need saving and we are not saved, we are already unsaved. We are already on the other side of the coin. And so I want to come to you today with a question. It's a question that we all wrestle with. One day when I meet God, are we okay? And the question that you need to answer is this, who do you say Jesus is? Will you agree with Jesus that he is the son of God, that he is the savior of the world, that he is your savior? Because Jesus came as savior but one day he'll say, have you been saved? And if you are on the other side of that coin, then you are in the unsaved. And they're one in the same coin. Who is Jesus? Not something to be feared, something to prepare ourselves with. You know, John in John chapter one, verse 12 said this, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God to those who received Jesus, those who said, I believe you are who you claim to be, those who believed in his name, they received the salvation of God. They received the gift of God. So I wanna ask you today, have you received the gift of God? Do you look forward with anticipation to his return? Because you already know that you and God are good. You have received salvation in him. You know, Jesus is not dead. He is alive. And everything changed when he was raised back to life. It proved he is exactly who he claimed to be, and it also proved he's coming back. 
Are you ready for him? Let me pray with you. Father, thank you for what you've done by showing us immense, eternal love that you spared no expense, that you sent your son Jesus to die in our place, our death, our punishment. But God, you did not leave Jesus in the grave. You raised him to life and he conquered the grave. And he is our savior. He is the resurrection and the life. So Father, as we wrestle with the question, who is Jesus? May we wrestle with that question in light of the resurrection, that Jesus, you are who you claim to be. And may we be those who are found to have received you and believed in your name. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We trust you have been encouraged and challenged in your faith journey. If you're desiring prayer, want more information on our church, want to partner with us or be involved in any way, please go to our website at mountoliveefc.com. We'll see you next time.